it's been a minute uh, since we've been here together in Colossians. So, you know, obviously when COVID happened, we were um, working our way through the letter to the Colossians, and we stopped about halfway through, a little more than halfway through the third chapter, and um, then we just kind of went topical and did a short series in Jonah while we were um, doing online services only, and so it's good to be back in the text we've been studying, and I didn't plan this. I totally didn't plan this. This was a God thing, but on all days for us to be talking about husbands, wives, parents, and kids, it's Father's Day. So, I, you know, that's just a Lord thing. I couldn't plan that. I'm not smart enough, um, but God just kind of orchestrated this to work that way, and it's, it's kind of cool. So for those um, who may not have been here prior to COVID, our studies here in, in Colossians 3, we've kind of highlighted this, this chapter as the new self. It's really Paul giving us these, these marching orders on what the new life looks like as opposed to our life before Christ. And so we, we did a, a series called The New Self that had like three parts to it. And this really would be part four, but it's, this is really all about family. Um, this is going to call out our family relationships. And the new self, and as we talk about the new self, um, we would kind of be not kind of we'd be missing a lot to not deal with the home in the midst of this to talk about the reality of us living a Christ-like life matters at home I think we understand that generally speaking but a lot of times we come to church and we recognize that we interact this way this is part of our our you know our worship and our fellowship with the body but you realize that God wants to transform our homes as well God wants to transform our family lives and so Lots of us know this because many of us have walked with the Lord for a number of years, but this is always a great reminder of what God says should happen in our homes and how we should lead our families, how we should be loving each other and walking with each other uh, through the day-to-day things that we go through. And I want to encourage you, if, if um, you plan to come and, and invest in these studies in Colossians, all of our, our, our studies prior on our podcast, so you can look them up on our website to get caught up. So I'm kind of refer to the, some of those things, but I'm not going to do an exhaustive like introduction to everything. It would just take forever, and we would lose a lot of time this morning on that. But before we begin here in Colossians 3.18, I want to remind us of some vital things. Um, we've seen in this chapter that the finished work of Christ made us a new creation. And that's really in connection with a passage that many of us will know in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It talks about how in Christ we're a new creation. All the old has passed away. The new has come. We're no longer to indulge our fleshly desires, but we put on the characteristics and the attributes of Christ. And Paul uses that analogy a lot. Like He, he talks about um, serving the Lord in a number of ways. And some of his favorite things, he talks about athletes. And then he'll talk about farmers here and there. And then a lot of times he'll talk about taking off something and putting on something new. And so in Colossians 3 up to this point, he's talked about taking off the old man and putting on the new man, how it's a completely different set of clothes, if you will. And in Ephesians, he'll get into this is a whole different kind of armor that we wear. He gets a little more hardcore in Ephesians. But when you think about putting on the characteristics and the attributes of our Savior, Paul goes to an extreme with what this should look like in verse 17. So if you're in Colossians 3, the verse that we ended with in our last study said this, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's like Paul's extreme application of everything. In whatever you're doing, in words or in deeds, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I don't know about you guys, if we start taking inventory over what we've done just in the last week, could we say that everything that we did was done in the name of the Lord Jesus? Every thought that we thought, 
every th- or if you're Dr. Seuss, every think that you think, you know, or every every word that you spoke, all of these things. Like, were, was this all done in the name of the Lord Jesus? Is there stuff you're like, I would never attach the Lord's name to that. I would never attach Jesus to what I did here. Room for growth. That's where we have room to grow in this. And so this is the evidence. When we can live a life that everything that we do is done in the name of the Lord, that's the evidence of a gospel-centric life. That's a life that is completely given to the Lord. And to be able to do everything that we do in the name of Jesus means that we've been molded into the image of Christ himself. And that's the goal. That's the go- our goal as a believer. It's not to be a better person. Our goal of becoming a Christian is not to become a better person. It's not a better. It's like you 2.0. That's not it at all. Like, I don't even want to know what I look like 2.0. I want to be like Jesus because me 2.0 is still me, and that's messed up. You know, like, I want to be, I want to be Christ-like. I want to be Christ-like. And inside of this walk with the Lord, we find ourselves taking steps of maturity to get to that point. Knowing where we are in Christ is, is a refresher and a reminder of where we were before him. And in sin, we had lost our dignity, our mission, our purpose. Sin strips us of all of those things. The gospel reclaims the dignity of humanity and exalts the lordship of God. It reclaims the the dignity of humanity and exalts the lordship of God so that when we're rooted in the one who shares deity with the Father, Jesus, and who shares humanity with us, it's there that this person of Christ, that Jesus himself, brings heaven and earth together. Jesus brings heaven and earth together because of his humanity and because of his deity. He's the one that ties these things together. And so in Christ, these things are brought together. We're cleansed of sin, and and all the aspects of our being, image bearers of Christ, comes together, and we finally have fellowship with the Father. Our mission, then, is defined not just by precepts. It's not defined by principles and priorities, but by a person. It's defined by Christ himself. And that person... Jesus defiantly and triumphantly steps out of history and declares with us, I am a human. I'm a human being. And I love the way that that's worded because I am human is ties in deity and humanity. And only Jesus can do that. And that's why being in Christ is so important. We understand these things, but I just want to, it's reminders for where we're going. When our lives are defined by his declaration, the rejuvenating act of salvation should reverberate through our entire lives. And I don't know if those of you who remember who um, studied with us thus far, noticed this or not, but we haven't talked about the home yet. Up until this point in Colossians, we haven't gotten inside the home. And isn't it interesting that a lot of times that's the last place we want to talk about? Because in the home is where people really know us. In the home is where we kind of take the filter off and everybody just gets what they get and that's, that's what you get. You know? And that's just how we, we, we act in that place. You know, well, I'm at home. Think about it. How, what do you do when you know you have company coming over? you clean up, right? Yourselves, your children, the house, like everything. We can't, and I, Sarah knows this. I'll run around, but like, people can't see this. They can't see this stuff everywhere. They need to, you know, it, it, there's just like, there's amount of presentation. And I understand that. There's an aspect to that. I'd be like, okay, we can be a little bit more loose and relaxed when people are around. But the problem is a lot of times we relax our image bearing when people aren't around when it's just our family. And what Paul's going to show us is in the home, it's just as vital that we are born again, new creation in Christ believers as it is on the outside. In fact, how we act at home and what we do with each other in our houses is the source and the really the epicenter of where ministry will come from. It's just like we understand within our hearts. 
I can't put on something that I don't believe in my heart. See, Christ saved us first within, then we put on the new, the new man, the new clothing, right? But Paul would never say, don't be changed, but put on these clothes and just act the part. We know that that's not what Christianity is about. And so why would you pretend to be something here that you are not at home? Why would you pretend to mentor, which we should? Why would we attempt to disciple, which we should, when we don't mentor and disciple in our own houses, our own people, the people that God has given us stewardship for? So Paul is going to end chapter 3, and he's going to challenge a, a number of relational um, aspects of our lives. He's going to talk about the marriage relationship. He's going to talk about the parent-child relationship. And then next week, we'll talk about the slave master of his culture. But I would say, you know, the work relationship for us today, you know, and some of you may feel like it's a slave master relationship, but you know, it's, it's this type of thing. How do we conduct ourselves with our wives, our husbands, with children and with parents? And also how do we conduct ourselves with our work situations and with where we basically in the public sphere And so, I want to say this before we begin verse 18, just one more thing. This is intended to encourage us. Some of these things are very convicting. Some of these things are very challenging for us. But I want to encourage you, we're in this together. My goal is not to stand up here in front of you guys and pretend like I have all the answers. I don't. God does. The Lord does. I don't have all the strength. Jesus does. And so I have to rely on on him just as much as you do, and we're in this together. We have to take these steps together. It's the beauty of being in small fellowship like this, you know. In one scan, I can see every single face in this room because it's a small room, you know. And, and like, it's we're in this together. We're doing this together. Um, And and we need to make sure that no one's standing on a false pretense of having it all together. There are always going to be reminders and steps we can take to cleanse our home and to improve our marriages and, and our kids' lives and then the lives of those who we work with. So we're going to focus in on the marriage relationship and on the parental-child relationship today. And what we're going to talk about is mutual obligation because that's something that is a very gospel-centric um, and Christian ethic that we learn from Scripture. So look at verse 18 with me, and let's look at the husband-wife relationship. Colossians 3:18 and 19 says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. The Christian ethic church is an ethic of mutual obligation. It's mutual obligation, meaning that it's never an ethic that places all the duties on one side, meaning that you do all this and I get to sit and eat Cheetos. You know, like it, that's not, and, and most of us get that. You're like, yeah, if I just sit and eat Cheetos, a lot of bad things happen, you know, but like there's a lot of consequences for that. But, but you guys understand that like it's mutual obligation. We share, we partner in this relationship together. In the Greek world of Paul's day, this is the unique thing about this. A lot of people will look at what scripture teaches about marriage and about how we partner with each other and how we share those responsibilities in marriage. And, and the world will look at it and say, that's so outdated, I guess it's more outdated than Paul because in his day, this wasn't normal. This was not normal. This was totally unheard of in his culture. This isn't just an older ideal. This was unheard of when Paul was preaching it. The first two examples that Paul gives is marriage and the parent-child relationship, but under both Jewish and Greek laws and custom, all the privilege in the marriage relationship belonged to the husband and all the duties to the wife. Now, gals, before you're like, that's what, no, 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 let's not, okay, I want you guys to, to, to make a deal with me. None, 
None of the, the elbowing be like, not to you. You know, like, we got we to gotta be careful about that. I want to encourage you guys with this stuff. I mean, jokingly, that's fine. But if you're like, I'm going to get you for this later. Happy Father's Day, babe. Um, <laughs> that's never been said, has it? <laughs> All these years? <laughs> not that way. <laughs> guys, under Jewish law this time, women were things. They were things. That was the cultural climate. The husband could divorce his wife for any reason he saw fit. She had a few situations. Not none, but a few. If he was leprous, she could divorce him. Right? If he, if he walked away from his beliefs, she could divorce him. If there was some form of sexual assault, it, there were certain cases that you could do that. And you can read through the law. It's there, uh, the law of their day. Greek culture was no better when it came to the rights and privileges that men had. They had many. Women, none. None. What's amazing, you guys, is Paul steps into his culture, right into the midst of it, and says, you want to know what God's plan looks like? Here's what God's plan looks like. The marriage relationship is a partnership. The marriage relationship is a partnership. That's what the fundamental biblical view of marriage is. It destroys the view of marriage in Paul's day, and it destroys the worldly view of marriage in our day. It's the view of marriage that we seek to teach and to instill in people, you know, and, and I, I, I can't help but look at, at Christian and Heidi because we've been through eight sessions recently of premarital counseling where this is all we've talked about, just what God's view of marriage is and how he sees it working out and what scripture says about it and the challenges that it is to have a godly marriage in a very pagan society, in a very immoral country. God's view of marriage destroys the worldly view of marriage of our day and rightly establishes God's vision and example of marriage done correctly in his eyes. It's here in God's vision that a man and a woman find new joy and new completeness in each other under the leadership of Christ. New completeness, new oneness. Any marriage in which everything is done for the convenience of one of the partners and where the other exists simply to gratify the needs and desires of the first is not a Christian marriage. Those are challenging things to say because it causes all of us to evaluate whether we are really holding up our end of this. And it's not a matter of like, are you doing your stuff? Because I'm doing my stuff. It's not like that. It's we're working together. We're partnering in this together. We want a partnership and not a dictatorship. It can happen on both sides. Ladies, just to give you a quick view of the text, what it says here, this submission is not subservience. Submitting to your husband is not subservience, meaning it doesn't mean you're less important. It's voluntary subordination. There's a voluntary connotation in the Greek when it says to submit. You're choosing to do this because it's fitting in the Lord or as is fitting in the Lord. This disposition is based on the wife's relationship with Christ. It's based on her relationship with the Lord. Now you're like, well, what about him? Oh, don't worry. We're going to deal with the dudes. We're going to deal with the dudes. But this is the thing. You are doing this as a way to serve as is fitting in the Lord, and it's voluntary. It doesn't have a false notion of inferiority. There is no inferiority. Guys, this is where I'll, I'll angle at the dudes. How easy is it for your wife to be on board with your leadership when you love your wives and never treat them harshly? If you love your wife and you never treat her harshly or be bitter towards them, that's what that literally means because Peter uses the same wording in 1 Peter 3, 7 when he says, husbands, remember and be understanding as you show honor to your wives as co-heirs of the grace of life. By the way, just 
try and hear that in a Greek culture. Like, he just said, you're co-heirs in the grace of life. They would be like, they're what? Paul's like, yeah. You know, like, that, that's unheard of. But he's reestablishing what God laid down in the beginning. Equal value. No inferiority. Co-heirs in the grace of God. Role differential? Yeah, there's different roles. But there's no less value. There's no inferiority. And so he says, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh towards them. Let me tell you something. If I'm not harsh and I'm being loving, I'm pretty easy to follow. And when the opposite is in play, I'm really difficult to follow. It's an example that's being laid down for us. We are partnered equally in salvation together, ladies and gentlemen. And married couples, here's the thing. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have failed, however, at this at one point or another. I I hope that none of us would sit and be like, well, I've been the perfect side of this marriage. May I suggest counseling? (laughs) To have that revealed. I think all of us, if we're being honest, would be like, yeah, I've I've failed in this. I've failed in this, and I, and I, I haven't always been what I should be. Maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe it was on way to church this morning. You know? Maybe it was, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when we used to drive to church together. We drive separately now because, you know, I have to get here early and all that stuff. And that's happened since ministry happened years ago. But like when we used to drive to church together, where was the place we were most likely to fight? On the way to church with the kids screaming in the back of the car. You know, this was your idea to go to first service. Yeah, well, happy Father's Day to you. You know, you just had to have your barbecue. I mean, I, and obviously she's like, oh, yeah, I do remember that one time. But you guys, you understand what this is like. Like we... We have not been perfect in our marriages. And so here's what I want to remind you of. If Jesus can bring heaven and earth together through his sacrifice, he can bring our marriages together. If he can bring heaven and earth together, do you really think your marriage is too big of a task? And so maybe there's issues. Guys, let me encourage you. Let me just encourage the guys and and challenge you to lead in this way. Assume a position of humility like Jesus. Assume a position of meekness like Christ. Lovingly lead your families and see how easy it becomes for them to follow you. It is so easy to follow a humble and meek leader. Just ask the disciples of Christ. He wasn't asking them to do easy things. Jesus was easy to follow because he was so loving. He was so meek. He was so humble. You guys... He can heal our marriages. And if we need to take some time today, and maybe it wasn't on your plan for Father's Day, maybe it was a nap and a barbecue, but maybe some apologies need to be had. Maybe some apologies need to be had. Maybe just a reminder to the person that you've been married to for however many years or that you're planning on marrying. You know, like, maybe just take a minute and be like, I haven't said this in a while, but you're the best. I love you. You know, like, I just, I'm so stoked that we get to do life together. Say those kind of things. Don't hold that in. You're like, oh, this is so sappy. Yes, and we need that. We need that in our marriages. Guys, get sappy, right? I mean, just get a shirt. Get sappy. I mean, like, let's just do it. Like, I mean, you can make it form-fitting and tight and buff. Look at Hey, bro, keep it sappy. Just do it. You guys, our our relationships need to be refreshed. They need to be continually renewed. You think about it. If you care about something, you have to maintain it. You have to put work in. I just want to challenge you guys. Let's do this together. 
Let's do it together. What are ways that we can pour into our marriages to make sure our families, our wives especially, and then our kids will feel the fallout of this, that our wives know that they're loved, that they're cared for, that we cherish them, and that we're leading them in the right direction. Let them see you fall to your knees and seek for God. It's so vital. And ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness all the time. Confess when you mess up. Sometimes I don't even know what I did. And that doesn't make it right. I'm not like, I don't even know what I did, so I'm completely innocent here. No, 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 no. Sometimes I don't know what I did because I'm an idiot. Right? And sometimes go, what did I do? You're clearly bothered. You know, like, I don't know what I did, but please tell me. And she'd be like, it's not about what you said. You know this. It's the way you said it, right? You guys, own up. Own up to it. You're like, sure, pick it on the guys. It's Father's Day. I can. But do you just realize that we, we have to set this standard? Husbands, love your wives. Don't be bitter towards them. Don't be harsh towards them. Lead them well. Much more to say to that, but for another time. Verse 20. Let's talk about the kids. Let's pick on the kids for a verse, and then we'll get back to the dads again. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. You know what's funny is how often I've heard verse 20 quoted and Ephesians 6, 1 quoted and nothing else. You know, hey, children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's pleasing to God. Do it. Obey. You know, but it's funny how often that you'll hear that verse quoted. And I've quoted to my youth group a lot of times, especially to my youth group, because I want to be, you know, I want to be loved by the parents a lot of times. So I'm like, hey, obey your parents, you know, and the kids come back and go, I'm not telling my parents you said that. Like, yeah, but they're watching online right now. So they know I said it. But you guys, look at the qualifier. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. We'll get to that in a second. Interestingly enough, the word for obey here lacks the voluntary sense that's found in submit. So when we're talking about wives submitting to their husband that has a voluntary connotation, when you're looking at the children obeying their parents, there's no voluntary. It's, it's a requirement. <laughs> parents, yes, it's required. But you can't, you can't do the whole like Roman parenting thing on them. You have to lead them well. So you guys, what's interesting about this is obedience to parents is how children please the Lord. This doesn't include, let me just qualify, immoral or idolatrous commands by the parent because it has to be what's pleasing to the Lord, right? And it's funny because I have some, I've had some kids over the years as a youth pastor come to me and be like, well, what if they asked me to kill someone? I'm like, first of all, who are your parents? <laughs> like, they're asking you to what? You know, but like, seriously, they, they put out these hypothetical situations. Like, in reality, they asked you to clean your room and you didn't like it. But I'm telling you this. Clean your room for both the sake of obeying your parents and that it's a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord and to your parents when you do. Like, you should be doing these things. But, but oftentimes, we're looking for the way out. You guys, if they're not asking you, kids, can I talk to you for a sec? If they're not asking you to do something idolatrous or, or immoral that's against the word of God, you need to listen. You need to obey because it's pleasing to God. I'm not just preaching this to my kids because I love the message. Verse 21 is for me. But because this is what pleases God. And you are learning submission to God through your parents. When we learn to submit to authority and to leadership, we are learning how to walk with the Lord later on in life. Because God's going to ask you to do things that you don't want to do, and you need to do them. The consequences and the cost only gets higher. 
the idea of mutual obligation now connects both to the parent-child relationship as it did to the husband and wife. And yet again, this would be really shocking, as Paul explains that it applies not only to marriages, but to the children as well. The Roman patia potestas, there's something to look up later, it's the law of the father's power in Roman culture. Boy, that just sounds good, doesn't it? The law of the father's power states, you know, like, little guy's a little book, according to the law of the father's power. You know, like, kids are hiding it from their dad. Don't let dad find the law of the father's power. Hide the law. Change it. Tear out pages. You guys understand this. According to this law that they had in Roman culture, he could sell them into slavery and not be, like, wrongful for doing that in Roman culture. He could force them into labor or condemn them to death and carry it out himself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and while all you fathers shoot a quick look at your kid, you know, first of all, recognize this is not God's way. This is a cultural thing at that time. God's made it clear that he expects there to be a loving, respectful relationship between parents and children on both sides, not just for the kids, but for the fathers as well. Because he says this so clearly, fathers do not exasperate your children so that they don't become discouraged. Encourage your kids. Finding a balance as a parent is difficult. It's really hard, and it doesn't get any easier when they get older. And most of you know this, but for just the, the young parents, you know, like it, it, it's, the learning is there for a reason. It's nice to grow and, and learn as your kids get older because you really have to go through that learning curve to get to the point where your kids reach, you know, for me, I know there's lots of people that have kids that are older than mine, but at my current stage, my kids are going from 17 to 9, in age range. And so I'm having conversations with my older kids that I would not have with my younger children. And, and there's this, this sense of, okay, they're getting to that age where I'm going to have to start letting them make some decisions. And, and let, me, let me encourage you guys, finding that balance needs to be made easier by both sides. Finding the balance of discipline and instruction, encouragement and correction can be made easier by both sides if both sides would be loving towards one another, would be serving one another and doing what they're doing for each other. Walking the line of being too heavy-handed and too easygoing can be a really hard one to walk for parents. That's a really hard thing to do. Am I being too harsh? My wife and I have this conversation all the time. I hope you guys do too. I hope the parents in the room have this conversation. Are we being too harsh? Are we being too easy? That's a good conversation to have. Have it often. Because you two, by God's design, balance each other out. You balance each other out. As you submit to the Lord, your natural connection to each other will balance these things. And we need to discipline our kids so they're prepared for life and what they're going to face in the world. But we can also become too harsh. And that's where Paul talks to the fathers here. Because I've noticed in my experience, it's not always like this. I had some conversations earlier, and it was really fun with people. But, like, you know, for the most part, mom's kind of the nurturer. You know, is a little bit softer on the kids. And dad's like, stop being dumb. You know, like, I mean, we, we just kind of get right to the point of it. Don't make stupid decisions. Thanks, dad. I mean, just, wow. You know, groundbreaking stuff. You know, and I say this to myself, too. I'll, I'll say it myself. I'll be like, don't do that. That's dumb. Instead of being like, okay, let's, and my wife, well, let's think about the decision that we made today. Let's think about how we did this. And, and she's walking through the process. I'm like, don't be stupid, and you will live many days. Like, I, I don't, I, I just, 
I get right to the point, but you guys realize we have to walk this line of not becoming harsh, not just you know slapping a one-word answer onto things. And may it never be said by our children, there's so many commentators and Bible teachers that talk about their relationships with their fathers in the negative. They talk about their relationships with their dads, and it's in the negative. John Newton said this about his dad, I know that my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to see it. I never want my kids to say that. To be like, oh, I know dad loved me because he didn't kill me. What? Like, I don't want my kids to wonder if I love them. I want them to know because I tell them. And because I show them. The duty of the parent is discipline, but it's also encouragement. Martin Luther wrote a lot about his struggles with his father in that... um, As he wrote about it, he made the following statement. He said, spare the rod and spoil the child. It is true. But beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he does well. That's really good advice. If if you discipline your kid, but also congratulate them and encourage them when they do something well, when they do it right. I think that a lot of times we as parents can forget that we can be exasperating to our children through expectation even though we want them to do well most of the time, I think most of the time we're doing it for their good, like we want, we want to see them grow, it can be a very challenging thing for us to walk that line of being encouraging and still being a disciplinarian. I'm going to lump moms in with this too. Fathers and mothers together, parents, let us not discourage our kids. Let us encourage our kids through discipline and through praise. Let us encourage them. Just as the husband can lead in such a way that their wife always feels loved, honored, and recognized as co-heirs of God's grace and salvation, your kids are people too. Your kids are created in the image of God as well. And you have been placed in a position of stewardship over them. So steward them well. You don't own them. You're a steward. And so steward them with the grace that God has given to you. Let us parent in such a way that we leave our kids no room to question whether we love them or not. Let them never question whether God loves them or not. Tell them. And tell them often. Show them that love and show it to them at every opportunity that's given to you. Never miss an opportunity. I'm reading a book right now, and I just finished it this last week. It's called Onward. It was written by Russell Moore, and it's about engaging culture for the cross and just being really intentional with the gospel and your culture. And um, Some great stuff in there. A few chapters back, he talked about the family, and he was talking about how we engage as the family, and he called out pastors, and this has been gnawing at me for a while now. He said this, and I quote, Pastors, we have to ask ourselves honestly whether the divorce culture and family breakdown inside the church is have not been fueled in part by our own preaching and teaching. I hope it encourages you guys to know that I readily get whooped up on by my reading. <laughs> like, I, I pick material that beats me up a bit. And not, not because, like, I just want to feel terrible at myself. I want to be challenged. I want to be challenged not to become complacent. I want to be challenged not to get too comfortable where I am. And what this challenged me for, church, is that, uh, you know, I can speak to these issues from scripture up here in the front 
I can quote Colossians 3. I can talk to you about Ephesians 5. I can talk to you from 1 Peter 3. All the passages about husbands and wives and children and how all this stuff should work. I can teach it perfectly, accurately, with conviction, and not live it. And if I don't live it, it invalidates everything I said. It absolutely invalidates anything that I say. So too is our parenting. If we say things or challenge our kids to do things that they don't observe us doing. We need to be role models. My greatest contribution to your encouragement is not just what I share from the pulpit. It's me presenting my family before you and showing you that I live this out and this is what God does. Does that mean my family is perfect? No. Does it mean my kids will always make the right decisions? No. No. They're going to make mistakes just like everyone's will. That doesn't put them up on a pedestal. What it does do inadvertently is in ministry, it puts us in a fishbowl. And ministry in a fishbowl is not easy, but it's what ministry should be. Because it gives the world the chance. It gives your church the chance. It gives your friends and your family the chance to walk all around and really see if doing things God's way pays off. Is this worth it? Our lives should scream out without our words, yes. Even in the midst of struggle, we have peace. Even in the midst of disagreement, we, we still love each other. I told my kids this recently. We were studying through First Peter together, and I looked at my two oldest, and I said, you know what? We have to start learning right now, with them being 15 and 17, to respectfully disagree. I said, now, if you disagree with me on doctrine or, or Jesus or all these things, I will very firmly try to convince you, but that's not going to change my love for you. It's not going to change my love for you. I still love you. You're still my kid. I said, but as, we get, as they get older, we have to learn to respectfully disagree because I've seen what happens in families where people disrespectfully disagree, and I'm calling out kids and parents alike. We have to learn to respectfully disagree with each other and be loving towards each other even when we don't agree because that's a Christ-like attitude. Think about how many of your friends you have equal orthodoxy with or equal theology with meaning that they believe the same things you do. If they don't believe everything to a T that you do, does that mean they're not your friend? No, we have differences. Does that cease to, does the love cease between you? It shouldn't. You should still love them. Why would we treat our families any differently? In fact, they should be the model for those things. You guys, these are difficult tasks. These are difficult issues. And, and I realize that saying these things are like, I'm thinking, you know, like probably in this room right now, there's like hundreds of different things like, well, what about this situation? Those are good questions. That's why we walk together. That's why we do life together because those questions are going to continue to come up. Those issues are going to continue to come up. And we are going to show love to each other as we walk through them step by step. Because there's difficult things in life. But we, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, have to be loving and bear all things. Believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. We have to keep working through this and show love to each other even when it's not easy. I tell you this, every single one of my kids needs to know this and every one of yours does as well that God loves them and that we love them too. Leave no doubt. 1 John 3.18 says, little children, speaking to us. You're like, little children? No, it's speaking to my kids. No, it's speaking to all of us. John's writing to the church going, little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Let's love each other in what we do. You should love them with what you say, 
Sometimes you don't have to say it when you're just living it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't say it, by the way. Some people are like, my family knows I love them. Do you tell them? Because that's part of it. You need to tell them. Guys, the home has to be rejuvenated. It's the source. It's the branching off point. It's the home base of our ministry. And the strength of our ministry will flow from the home. You can't take your belief in the Lord and try and do it out here and then let that work its way into the home. It starts within and it grows outward from there. It's just like us not putting on new clothing on a dirty body. We have to be cleansed and then put on the new clothing. It has to start within and work its way outward. We understand this, but let's take it into the family sphere as well. want to walk with you guys through this. We're all going to need to grow in this area. But I think that if we want to see the Lord work in our communities, he's calling us to start in our houses. And as it grows out of our houses, it's going to then affect the community. It's authentic growth, and it's going to bring glory to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I know some of these things aren't easy. And Lord, I, I know there's a lot of marriages that are struggling right now. I hope not in this room, but God, if there are, I pray, Lord, that this would be the starting point of healing, of loving reconciliation, of not holding grudges, but, Lord, recognizing that for us married people, our husband, our wife, Lord, they're our provision. God, you have given them to us as a provision, not as a curse. But Lord, to be one with, to glorify you. Heal our brokenness so that we can do that. Lord, I pray for marriages in this room that are doing well. Keep them strong. I pray, Lord, that they would take heed to their steps lest they fall. Lord, that they would watch very carefully as the enemy is seeking to tear apart the family. So many issues that we see in our country, Lord, we recognize as a, a result of broken families. And Lord, we as the church should model what a family submitted to you looks like so that people will want that. Lord, so that there would be saltiness to our lives so that people would be attracted to that. Lord, we, we just recognize we don't have all the answers, but you do. We don't have all the strength, but you do. So we submit to you on this. Strengthen us as a church. May we be a church who disciples each other, walks with each other through these hardships. Don't let any of us quit on each other. Lord, I pray that when I have struggles that people will come alongside me. I pray that when people in this body have struggles that we would come alongside them, that we would do this and recognize that if one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. Let us mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice create healing in our church, create healing in our community. Jesus, so that you will be lifted high. Minister to our hearts, Lord. And as we worship, God, I, I want to pray for the kids. It's a difficult culture to grow up in. God, I pray that they would ask the questions they need to ask. That they would begin now to firm their foundation in you for themselves. To seek after the answers. And Lord, that they would discover more and more this amazing relationship with you, God, that you have for them. Bless our children. Keep them safe from the enemy.
draw us together as we worship.